As you're seated, we begin today, we really began, of course, last week with Advent, and we continue it, but our series begins called uh, Reconcile. We're looking at the craving that we all have to be reconciled. There is a craving, I believe, that we have because we're so hurt by the divisions that are in the world, the divisions that exist among us, that we feel, and some of us, if we're honest today, that we feel towards God, a space and a distance that is there, and we, we crave reconciliation. Years ago, Susan and I were out with friends at dinner, and she uh, told us that she had uh, she was going to a meeting on Saturday night. But here's the thing: I didn't know that she was going to the, this meeting on Saturday night. This first I'd heard of it, and I learned it with our friends. And I had secret plans for the Susan and me on that Saturday night. So I was a disappointed, and honestly, uh, feeling a little bit rejected. And you know what happened? That voice, that inner voice, spoke to me, and it said, Robert. You should be mean to her. So in my poutiness, that's a pouty voice, by the way, and it exists within me. And so it kicked into my spiritual gift of poutiness. And so what I did is I turned sort of subtly because we're with friends. I, I wanted to like send her a message, but not send our friends a message because, you know, I'm a pastor and stuff. And so I was like, I just kind of turned away from her and I, um, I, I, I didn't smile at her. And I, I gave eye contact to our friends. I made sure no part of my body was touching her body. I was stiff and formal in my posture toward her. And then another voice spoke up and said, you should really love her. You're, it was a better voice in me, the better part of me. And it appealed to that better part of me, the more noble side of me. And, and I stopped being mean and I wasn't so stiff in my posture. And I included her with my eye contact. She actually said something funny and I threw my head back laughing genuinely. And I, was, I, was, I, was, I went back toward her and you know what she did? She, she put her foot under the table. She, she put her foot on my foot and she nudged it. And then she started rubbing her foot on my foot. And I've, we've been married a long time. I know what that foot was saying. That foot was saying, it's okay. We're married. You're a stud. I am so happy to be married. We'll talk about this later when we get home. I'm still going to go out this meeting Friday, uh, Saturday night without you. You're not the boss of me. Susan has a very expressive foot. You should meet it sometimes. <laughs> but in that moment, hear me now, in that moment, that tiny shift when thoughts went from hostility to humility, when emotion went, you know, from irritation to affection, when intention went to, from inflicting pain to making peace, we were tapping into a spiritual force in the universe created by God. And it has a word. The word is reconciliation. Turn in your Bibles or just simply look up at the screen. And this is our passage today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says this in verse 19, that is Christ God was doing what? He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I believe we crave reconciliation and the message of the Christmas season is a God who reconciles. We'll get deeper into this in the later weeks, but God not only wants us to experience 
the ministry of reconciliation or the reality of reconciliation, but he wants us to minister it to others. In fact, we are ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? Someone living in a strange and foreign land. That land is not their home, but they represent their country of origin. And that's what it means. Does anybody feel that way when you, when you think about politics, when you think about the debates, when you think about the things that are happening around us, and you just feel like this is not my home. I am homeless. And that is this reality that we will have if we're apprentices and students and followers and disciples of Jesus will feel that way. We are ambassadors of Christ in this world. We are to bring about reconciliation. Here's the Christmas story. Isaiah chapter 11 says this, the Bible writers long for reconciliation. They long for the Messiah who would come to reconcile the world to himself. They use very descriptive metaphors. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And what does it say? Christmas story. And a little child will lead them. Isaiah would also say in the 53rd chapter in the 6th verse, it's not on the screen, trust me with it, it says all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's why we need to be reconciled. That's why you and I, all of us need to be, all, notice the language, all we like sheep have gone astray. Now, we don't get sheep much, do we? Uh, there aren't any sheep farmers in the room, but there's a man named Ben Jackson. He's a sheep farmer in New South Wales, and he was unable to attend his Aunt Deb's funeral. So he had the idea he would honor her memory by making a heart in the form of sheep that would be seen from heaven. Have you seen this? This just gets me. Feeling small When tears are in your eyes I will dry them all I'm on your side us and we need what do sheep need sheep need to be enfolded sheep need to be led how do you do that by the way anybody know I, I bet some of those some smart herding dogs that put them together but this this is us and all we like sheep we have turned astray we need to be reconciled first we need to be reconciled with God and we need to be reconciled with others and I'm going to give you a heads up I'm going to lean on you today okay I'm not going to try to just preach I want to meddle in your business a little bit because I know there's some broken relationships I know that some of you've given up God wants you to be reconciled you have to do your part you have to do your part in this regard you have to leave it the results to God and the power of the Spirit, but He longs for us to be reconciled this week. Think of this week, y'all. I'm, I'm going to go there, but think about the Supreme Court. Think about the fight for the sanctity of life. Think about the division in our country that hurts so much. I met with two pastors this week to pray for our country. Can I invite you to pray for our country, to pray for life, to pray for our judges, to pray for our court, for pray for us to treat people respectfully? And this week I met with two pastors, a black pastor and a brown pastor. I'm a white pastor, if you didn't know. 
and we just met and we just prayed for our nation. We prayed for life. Deuteronomy said, God has set life and death before you. Choose life. We prayed. I invite you to pray for every woman that's had an abortion, for God's grace to be a part of her life, to know that she's forgiven and free in Jesus. I want you to invite you to pray as we did that day that our churches would be built and we would build men, in particular men, who I believe should be vastly more accountable for unplanned and unwanted pregnancies. And I pray for the leaders who would lead well and seek God's will for our nation and to value life, but also to value love. And when people are on different sides, that we can talk respectfully and lovingly and listen and value other people and where they are. I pray for our country. This week, I got, and I know she's watching uh, now, I mentioned her in the first service, but I got a text from Melissa Bogolowski. Many of you won't know her, Langston does, and others, they're good friends. She tunes in. I think sometimes she wants to hear me preach, but she certainly wanted to see Langston's baptism. But she was involved in medical school here, moved to Florida, and then back to her home state of Michigan. And she texted me on Tuesday slash Wednesday and said, Robert, pray for Detroit, pray for Oxford High School, pray for four kids who've lost their lives and other teenagers that are in the hospital fighting for their lives pray for our nation. Y'all, our heart longs for rightness. Our heart longs for reconciliation because we're so hurt by the division. And at the heart of the Christmas story is a God who longs to reconcile. Here's what we know. I saw heads nodding in the 930, the earlier service, but how many of you would agree, would agree that the, the best part of Christmas is family being close? How many of you would also agree that the hardest part of Christmas is some family being close? Well, here's what I want to do today. I want to give you a quick summary of the family in Genesis. I'm going to do this so fast. I'm just, I'm not going to hit it all. Just a quick summary of the first uh, 37 chapters. And here it goes kind of like this when, it talk, when we talk about the family. There were brothers, Abel, Cain and Abel. Abel was the older brother. He killed his younger brother, Abel. There's a man that came, came along a few years later, uh, Lamech, and Lamech introduced the world to polygamy. He was the first polygamist and also a murderer. Noah got drunk, and Abraham impregnated his wife's maid, and Jacob uh, had 12 sons from two wives and two w- maids of those wives, and he favored a son named Joseph. And those, tw- those other uh, sons grew jealous of Joseph. They kidnapped their brother Joseph, and they uh, sold him into slavery. They got a robe. They covered it in goat's blood and gave it to their father and lied about him being dead. So let me just say today, sit up straight. You probably should feel a little bit better about your own family. Now, here we are in Genesis 30. That's just a little bit of the family uh, summary from Genesis. Now we're in chapter 38. So what I want to do this morning in just a few moments, I want to share with you a Christmas story. And you're going to be there today, here today, and you're going to say, RG, that ain't a Christmas story. Like, you are messed up talking about all this mess up. This is not a Christmas story. And can I just say, I'm going to get out front here. You're going to be wrong, so don't say it out loud, all right? This is a Christmas story. You're just not going to know it until the very end. In. So Genesis 38, we're introduced to Judah. Y'all know anything about Judah? Have you ever read this? What Judah goes down to Abdullah and he's in this land and he uh, marries and he has three sons. And here are the three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shalah. Ur, 
Onan and Shelah. Anybody pregnant? Anybody? I see some of you, y'all are looking for maybe a baby name. Uh, I know y'all aren't going to invite me to your gender reveal because I've made fun of it from up on the stage several years ago and nobody invites me to their gender reveal parties. That's cool. But here's a couple of name, or three name options for you. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur was the oldest. Onan is the middle child. Shelah is backing up the rear. He's the third son. And Ur was, the, as the firstborn, have y'all read much about firstborn and the birth order and the middle child? Did y'all, y'all believe any of that? Do y'all lend credence uh, to that? Honestly, I do. And I'm just sharing a little bit of an opinion. But the Bible, the writers of Genesis here, the writer of Genesis here, mentions that Ur was the oldest, the firstborn, three times. He wants you to know this. The firstborn children are typically high achievers. They're a little more responsible than the others. They are the folks who become presidents and prime ministers. And as I said, hard-charging achievers. Those are the firstborn, and Ur is the firstborn. And don't we all want to live in the land of Ur? Uh, Ur was older, stronger, handsomer, wiser. He was stronger, and turns out he was wicked-er. And Scripture tells us that Ur was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that he died. And Let's put this passage up, Genesis chapter 37, uh, verse, or 38, verse 7 and 8. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, this is the middle one, the middle son, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. I told you this is a Christmas story. Read it to your children if they're in their 20s. Okay, history, culture, context. Let me help you. History, culture, context. If you're reading the writings of old, history, culture, and context. Understand that there was, I mean, y'all have heard the statements about the world's oldest profession. Well, there was not a welfare system. There was not a social security safety net at that time. So it was the obligation of, father, of father-in-laws to take care if something happened. So in this case for Judah, when something happened to Ur, who was wickeder than all of them, then it was his obligation to take care of of Tamar. And so with Tamar, um, the, uh, he uh, is obligated to give him Onan. And he does give him the second son, but the second son refuses to impregnate her. There's some explicit language in the Bible. I see some children. You'll be glad I didn't read it uh, from the stage this, uh, this morning. But uh, it, 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 Christmas story. But it, it, he uh, refuses to impregnate her. And so she's left being barren. And then it was a real stigma. It was a stigma that uh, women wore back then, uh, particularly poignant at that time. And so Judah makes after, so think about Tamar. She's married and she was given to two men and they both die of wickedness. They're both removed. So she has that loss and she is barren. And Judah makes a promise to her that I will give you, who's the third son? Anybody remember Shalah, I will give you Shalah, but Shalah is a youngster. And he says, you know, you go back to your place of residence across the way. And when Shalah is uh, old enough, I will, you know, you will be given to him in marriage. And you guys can, can raise a family and plant the crop on the South 40 back here. And, but secretly the deception begins with Judah. And he said, I'm not going to do this because this is going to hurt me financially with the birth order and the inheritance. And because the firstborn were given the inheritance, all this stuff's kind of complicated. I'll bypass a lot of it. But Judah's like in his heart, he devises this wickedness. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And Tamar is left and she has, uh, she's in a, in a tough situation. And she 
goes to this land where she knows Judah will be. Now, Judah loses his wife. She dies, and he doesn't stick around and mourn for long. He goes to this land, Timnah, and Tamar is there, and she dresses like a prostitute. She's wearing veil and such, and, she, and he uh, propositions her. He says, for relations, I will give you the young goat here. And she asks for collateral. Stay with me here. Uh, you will need to give me the seal, the cord, and the staff. And they have relations. And she, uh, Judah's unaware, but she becomes pregnant. So if you're Judah, you are Tamar's you're the father of these children and her father-in-law. If you're Tamar, you're the mother of these children and the sister-in-law to these children. This church is a Christmas story. Read it to your kids if they're in their 60s. And so the passage says this. This is where it was sort of culminated here. Genesis 38 says this. About three months later, Judah was told your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Bring her and burn her. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And in one fell swoop, Judah is confronted with his treachery. Are y'all reading ahead? Don't read ahead. Look at me. And Ju- by the way, this is the same language, the precise same language of Joseph in the story. Hey, do you recognize this with the, the blood? Same exact language. And uh, where are we? I got to turn this way. I, I guess I can't read from my right today. Uh, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Robert, where are we going with this today? Do you want me to come back next week? What is the moral of this story? Well, I wrote it down. The moral of this story, if you're a woman and your first husband dies from wickedness and you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and he dies and your father-in-law won't let you marry his third son, just wait for his wife to die and pretend to be a prostitute and have your father-in-law's kids and it will work out in the end. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) You know, in the Bible, here's a great mistake that we make. In the Bible, and it leaves it open to attack, so I want to, but in the Bible, if we come to it, many parts of it, these parts of it, and we're looking for moral virtue fables, it'll let us down. This is, in seminary they teach you this, this is not a prescription for how any of us should live. This is a description of how certain people lived. And so what we see in the Bible is a real world with messy relationships and sometimes great evil alongside moral ambiguity and oppressive systems like patriarchy here. And by the way, the Bible does not endorse patriarchy. If you, and I love to interact with this. I have before in, in um, collegiate environments and academic uh, places of debate and all. But the Bible, it was written this part in, a, in patriarchal times, but it doesn't endorse patriarchy. In fact, the opposite. If you follow the moral arc, you will see people like Tamar being free. You will see her being oppressed. Now, she wasn't perfect in this. You know, I, I look at Tamar, I think, why couldn't she? She had a real want to be a mother, to have a family. But why couldn't she have done it in a more virtuous way? Why couldn't she have, you know, maybe sold essential oils or, uh, to, you know, learn computer coding or, or, 
or sold Mary Kay products or something like that. You know, there, there's that, okay? There's that. But you see the, the patriarchy go down. You see a powerful man think that he's going to get away with something, and he doesn't. And God is always on the side of those who are oppressed. And if you follow the moral arc of Scripture, that's what, we'll, that's what you see. And it's pretty, pretty clear. So what do we make of this? Here's this story, and how do we connect it to Christmas? Well, we, we don't go to Luke. I know a lot of you, uh, maybe like our family, you'll read Luke chapter 2. As a family, you'll read Luke chapter 2, and that's uh, a great Christmas story, of course. But Matthew starts with the genealogy. And you know, we're doing scripture memory. We're giving you a, a, a memory verse. I've got to give some money to a young lady, young girl who memorized uh, this week's passage. I owe her some money. I'll give it to her uh, after church. She quoted it to me in the gym Wednesday night. And I, I, didn't, I'm, I don't carry cash a lot. So I went to the ATM to make sure I could pay her for her memory verse. I ain't paying y'all for a memory verse, but, but just her. But we don't ask you ever to memorize the genealogy. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do that. So for genealogy for us is boring and it's dull and it seems like a colossal waste of space but look at what Matthew says genealogies were different back then this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David the son of Abraham Abraham was the father of Isaac Isaac the father of Jacob Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers Judah the father of Perez and Zerah those were the twins that she gave birth to read it with me whose mother was Tamar Perez the father of Hezron Hezron the father of Ram this woman became a mother of Israel she was included in the family tree. Genealogies for us, boring, dry, dull, waste of space. Genealogies for them, they did memorize them. For them, it was a way to tell. They told the orally who was connected to who. And it was a way to say, we have a culture and we have an identity. We are a people and we have a story. And that was genealogy for them. And notice on Jesus's family tree. Now, trees are really important in scripture. You see a tree at the beginning. There's a healing tree for all the nations in Revelation. Trees are throughout scripture. We have a savior hung on a tree. Trees are important. And Matthew introduces us to a family tree. And let me ask you, he includes it as part of the Christmas story because he's writing to a Jewish audience who would value it. But there's this family tree that Matthew introduces us to. I want to ask you about your family tree. Have you ever, anybody, y'all ever done that ancestors or the 24? You ever, you ever looked at like who your people are? You ever gotten curious about that? Anybody? We had a lot of heads nodding in the first service. And everybody that I've talked to that's done that always finds interesting very fascinating, curious, sometimes uh, joyful, sometimes painful facts about their ancestors, about who they come from. And here's what's interesting, and Matthew takes time to teach us this, that on Jesus' family tree, there are liars and there are cheaters and manipulators and adulterers. There are murderers and there are prostitutes on the family tree. This is what Matthew wants us to know, part of what he wants us to know in the Christmas story. So the moral of the story is not to live in any way like this. But I want to present to you what, the, what we can deduce from this. Out of messy relationships, unmet expectations, and hopelessness of sinful people comes a shoot which is Jesus. Christmas 
This is the story. Unexpected things from unexpected times through unexpected people. Back to Isaiah, Isaiah 11 and verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump. This is genealogy stuff. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. What do you know about shoots? Probably not much. But shoots don't grow anything. Shoots are done. Shoots are, uh, one translation, we would say stumps. What do you know about a stump? You may, if you're duck hunters or some of you go, you know, killing things and you're out on the water fishing and you see a stump, man, you see a stump and you just think of something from the past. Nothing's going to grow on that stump. Nothing's going to grow on that shoot. But the message of Christmas is unexpected things at unexpected times working through unexpected people and the message of Christmas is a story of reconciliation that you and I we can still grow that the work that God wants to do he is not finished yet Philippians 1 6 he who began a good work he wants to complete it in you and I there's no doubt in Advent here that some of us feel hopeless We feel hopeless or we're going to gather around a table, at a table or around a tree and we're going to look over at someone and we're going to say, how are you doing? And we may say, what's wrong with you? And they may never tell back to us, but there are people who are losing hope and who need to be reconciled. God doing unexpected things at unexpected times, unexpected places through unexpected people is the message of Christmas. Back up a little bit. When Judah is confronted with his sin, and isn't God like that, you think you're getting away with it. You think your deception and treachery is good enough that you've covered your tracks and you've gotten away for it. And powerful people think that, like I said, oppressive systems are dismantled in the scripture. We are to be involved in dismantling oppressive structures and systems. And the language that that when Judah is confronted with his pain, it says he recognized He recognized. And here's what I want for you. Here's my pastor's heart when I think about this odd way to approach the Advent season and making this part of or understanding that this is part of the Christmas story. I want you to recognize where you need to be reconciled. I want you to not be asleep, to live in a comatose way. And if you're a regular churchgoer, raised in the church, it could be particularly easy for you to fall asleep during this Advent season and to not recognize where you are falling short, where your life is getting off into the ditch. Recognize the conviction of God. What I've noticed in living in Fondren, what I've noticed in our debate in our day of the tough, thorny issues is that when you start yelling and screaming, very little reconciliation takes place. You ever heard this? Those who know the least know it the loudest. And then you give those guys a bullhorn and it's just, it's obnoxious. And it doesn't reflect the heart of a reconciling God. And Romans says, y'all heard me preach this, Romans 2, 4. It's your kindness that leads to repentance. You want to see somebody's change, somebody's life change? Be kind. And yes, there's a place for confrontation. The male patriarchal deceiver, Judah, was confronted. He thought he was getting away, and it's painful. Look, I have been and will be confronted with my own sin. And it's painful. But it's your kindness, God's kindness, 
that leads to repentance. We begin to open up, and if, it, if this may be the case for some of you, if you're an old stump and you feel like you're, all your good days are behind you, God is not through, and God has a work, and that will work. He will reconcile to the extent that you recognize. And I want to ask you what you're looking past today. Lauren, whenever y'all are read, this isn't a long sermon. I don't know that I have much left. But I want to ask you today, I just want to guide us in a prayerful, prayerful thought. Because when you leave here, it's going to be just like when you came here. How many of you rushed to get here today? How many of you maybe were unkind to somebody? How many of you were impatiently waiting for somebody? How many of you thought something mean about them or did something to them? How many, like, everything out there is going to tell you in Christmas, rush, rush, rush. Like, our staff, we're doing a lot right now. Don't you feel like we're doing a lot, a lot of stuff? And I, I told a couple of our staff, I'm like, hey, let's, let, me, let me get involved in the calendar meeting for next year. See if we can spread a little bit out. But Because I, I, I tell my staff, that I want y'all to have joy. I want you to be a walking advertisement that Jesus is good and our church is healthy and we love each other hey god will take care of the mission but like everything around you says rush 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 you're not doing enough you need to be blank er you need to be busy er but advent is slowing advent is waiting and i preach this from time to time because it's so needed because i've i got my stuff and you know what's hard? I know this is, I want to minister to some of you. Waiting is so hard. And some of you are having to wait right now. And, you know, the story of Advent, like we could sugarcoat this, but we would be disingenuous. But like there's 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And that's Advent. And I do not know why we have to wait like we have to wait. And that lends us to what we talked about, to Christmas being about unexpected things, unexpected times, and unexpected places with unexpected people. And so for you, what you may need to recognize today is that God is not finished. You need to hold on. You need to cling to the promises of his word and wait for him. The psalmist would say, I have never seen the righteous begging for bread. But I bet you he worried about it a lot. I bet you there were times when he thought, oh, I, look, look, I'm, look, look. But looking back toward the end, I've, God is faithful. He will come through. Let these words minister to whoever needs to hear it today. Continue to wait in this Advent season. Whoever needs to hear this, this is a little bit of the harder word, but be reconciled to God. You may not be reconciled to God. You may be a church goer. Your heart may be pulled toward the baptism waters when you see a story like Langston's this hour, Hannah's last hour. You may think, I need to accept Christ. I need to be forgiven. When we sing, and I think we will, what can wash away my sin? Here's the thing. We can advance in education, in intellectualism, with technology, with all of our sayings and livings and movings and beings. But our heart, if left unchanged, we've advanced not. We need to be forgiven. We need to be set free. Have you received reconciliation? Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he's drawing you to him? 
what do you need to recognize today? What's the thing that you're looking past that you think you're either getting away with or it's okay, I'll put it off till tomorrow. We did a whole sermon series around here years ago. We were over at Dueling Hall. We said, we called it tomorrow, the code word for never. And if, you, if you're not careful, spiritual formation, character development, your soul being right and being formed to Jesus, you'll put that off and put that off while everything around you is calling for your attention. And so as we, we're going to become students of reconciliation. Here's the thing about the best students, any teachers in the house, the best students are they take what they learn and go do something with it. And the brother of Jesus would say in James 1, some of us, man, it's like we hear the word and we're like the man who looks at his face in the mirror and we just, we, we look at it and then we walk away forgetting about it because we've done nothing about it. So for you, for anybody that needs to recognize sin, that needs to recognize uh, inadequacy, that needs to recognize an area that has not been reconciled, I want to encourage you today, just as Judah was confronted with the seal of God, confront you. If needed, let another confront you. You confront another. You make it right. You be reconciled. Let's apply reconciliation. Our world is longing for it. The story of Christmas is a story of reconciliation of people out there being brought into here. Canaanites being with Israelites. Prostitutes next to patriarchs. The oppressed with their oppressors. Messy people in a complex world with pain all around. Our need is for reconciliation. I want to ask you today to pray for our church and to pray for our community and pray for our land. I really believe that God wants to do a revival that might be different in the past. And this revival would be one of brokenness and humility. Not of self-righteousness, not of shouting, not of self or vain glory, but of brokenness and humility. Stand with me. Let me pray over you. Earlier this week, someone left me a note. Was it you? And it said, I love you. It was on my, in my office. I love you. And it had some initials at the bottom. And I don't know anybody with these initials. I love you. And so I was kind of walking around like, who, who, who loves me? Who wrote this? Hey, did you write this? You write, you know, you, did you see anybody go in my office? You know, I was just trying to find, I still hadn't found out. And I was, there was a few people behind me and I heard them talking. I was talking to them. Hey, do you know anything? Who, who was in my office? Who wrote this? Who left me? And uh, somebody behind me was like, what's he doing? And the person said to them, he's trying to, he's walking around trying to find out, find out who loves him. And, uh, you know, I was thinking that that's kind of us, isn't it? Like that's your, aren't you doing what I did this week? Like trying to, I don't know if anybody left you a note, like I, you know, I got a note. I don't know if you got a note this week, but somebody loves me, but aren't we all walking around trying to figure out who loves us? That's, uh, that's everybody. And that's where we're living. And reconciliation is saying, you know what? God loves me and he loves me in my mess. Anybody feel better about their family today? Anybody just li- listening to Genesis a little bit? Like you, sh- you should feel better. If you don't, woo. But I think these guys beat you honestly. But we're all walking around wondering who loves us. And the message of Christmas is, though there is one who came. 
in the most unlikely way, was born in a manger and died on a cross and rose again on the third day. And he did not come, John chapter 3, he did not come in the world to condemn the world, but to love the world. Let me pray for us. Father, bless this few closing moments, this time of prayer. Bless these tithes and offerings. Thank you for this Christmas story that's messy and complex and just downright weird. But Lord, our lives can be uh, similar and our lives uh, need, we need to know that this messy message of Christmas can come into our existence and be a part of us. Lord, there are folks today who are unwilling or have been unwilling to recognize their sin, unwilling to recognize their need for a Savior, unwilling to recognize that the blinders need to come off and they need to confront. Maybe it's deception. It's fractured us and gotten in the way of our relationships. Lord, minister to your people. Thank you for a generous church. Lord, for those, I thank you for those who've embraced the biblical mandate to to give tithes and offerings and to live generously, systematically, sacrificially. Uh, Lord, I pray, I, I know fear is a big determinant of whether we become givers or not. And I pray that you would move us away uh, from our fear and move us toward generosity and that, that we would uh, hear a, a faith family would continue to love people, that we would fight for life, that we would uh, foster and adopt children, that we would raise up men who would be godly, that we would fight human trafficking, that we would share the gospel, that we would plant churches that we would be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. In Jesus we pray, amen. Let's sing, and if you want to come today to be prayed for, the altar is open and pastors are down front. You come today.